Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Good to be with you tonight, Encounter Church. How are we doing? Best looking church in Adelaide, five years running. Wow, very good to be with you today. I'm not sick. I'm still croaky, but not sick. So this is good. Uh, but I did run the city debate today. Run is a loose term. For, thank you. all I needed. <laughs> Not so much that. Hey, yeah, uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's great to be with you. We are, we're in the tail end, actually, of a series called The Meaning of Life. And it's a long series, so we're not at the end, but we're sort of coming to the late stages of the middle part, which is far less inspiring now that I say it out loud. Um, we, we've been doing this in a few sections. We've been examining the question that I think is central to the 21st century, which is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live as a human being in every facet? So we, we had a section that was basically uh, oriented around life, and now we're at the end of a section, or in the middle rather tonight, uh, that's about death, and then we'll be going on to talk about the wider world how we live in the wider world. So let's get to the teaching text tonight. And the teaching text is Psalm 23. If you uh, have your Bibles, open it with me. If you don't, download a Bible app and you'll have a great time. Psalm 23. You may not need it open, but uh, if you do, open up. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Usually we say this is God's word, but it's such a clear prayer, isn't it? (laughs) Well, um, I love that. I I love Psalm 23. That has nothing to do. I have no segue for what I'm about to do. So story time. Uh, I'm an adopted kid. I mentioned this uh, recently last week. Periodically, whenever it suits my sermons, I'm an adopted <laughs> kid. And, uh, and because of that, I had this interesting moment when I was 30. I've grown up knowing I was adopted, but it was when I was 30 that my parents reached out to reconnect. And uh, I remember meeting up with them and going, man, this is really weird. And they started telling me about how they shared it with their families because their, their spouses had known about me, but their kids hadn't. And so one of my brothers, because I've got now four brothers and a sister where I grew up an only child, and that's a whole thing. One of my brothers was like, oh, man, this is a very packed to the rafters vibe, isn't it? you got to remember this was 10 years ago. <laughs> I'm like, very packed to the rafters. We're just introducing new characters because the family's getting a bit boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's not bad. 
that's not bad. And so you begin to get to know these people. But, but the thing that was a real highlight for me, I was, I was really excited to have siblings, and I am on the off chance that any of my family is watching. <laughs> but what I was really excited about was to have grandparents because I lost all my grandparents by the time I was 17. They'd all passed away. One of them died before I was born, and, and the rest of them, they were, they were all gone by the time I was 17. And so when I came back and, and I found my biological family, and all of my grandparents were alive, and I was like, this is like a video game. Like, I just got a whole new set of lives. This is unbelievable. Like, the grandparents have leveled back up. It's, 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 it's incredible. So I got together with these new grandparents, and, and that was great. Now, the thing I didn't get, and my siblings, all my grandparents, was relationship or depth because those things can only be hard one over time. You can't just walk into that. You can have the biological relationship. You can have kindness and, you know, common human courtesy. What you can't have is years and years of those little scuffles between siblings that are actually an act of love, but you're trying to work out how to know one another. What you can't have is your grandparents sneaking you ice cream when your parents say you can't have any or, or turning up to your sporting events knowing nothing about it, but just wanting to love on you. You can't have that. You can't shortcut your way to that. So even though I use that language and make that joke to go, oh, I, I've, got, I've got a brand new set of grandparents, and I do, I had to start at ground floor in building relationships there. And I say that because I, I want to talk a little bit tonight about shortcuts, and I want to talk a little bit tonight, I actually want to go a whole bunch of places tonight. We'll see where we go. I'll be careful though, because we are, I said last week it was a big topic, we talked about abortion, and that's up on the podcast or YouTube if you want to watch it or listen, but um, this week we're tackling the topic of euthanasia and suicide. That is a very sensitive topic, and I just would ask everybody, I'll be doing my best to be sensitive as we speak, I would ask you guys to be very, very sensitive in your conversations with one another. Consider the words you are using to each other, especially tonight and especially this week. Um, encourage and bless people. Listen to people's stories really, really carefully. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't, don't trivialise anyone's story. Can, can we be really careful to do that this week? Right, that's good. I know we can. I love this church. And... Um, I think let's just pray and invite God to guide our hearts and minds tonight, hey? Loving God, you, you are always here. You're always with us. And your Holy Spirit guides us. So Holy Spirit, come. Would you, would you do all the things you promised to do in the Bible? Would you, would you counsel us and comfort us? Would you convict us? Would you guide us where we need to go? But above all else, would you be the presence of God with us tonight as we step into another complex conversation? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we looked at probably the most vulnerable group of people in existence, the unborn. They are people who cannot have a voice for themselves. So hence, they are the most vulnerable people in existence. But now we head to the other end of the vulnerability spectrum. That is to look at some equally vulnerable people who don't really get talked about very often. And that's people who are extremely elderly and frail, people battling terminal illness, and people battling with mental, severe mental health. Now, I've, I've grouped euthanasia and suicide together because they both concern that decision for somebody to take their own life. Now, they're, of course, quite different, and I'm about to give them their own space. So let's begin with suicide. The rate of suicide in Australia is roughly 12 per 100,000. Now, that's relatively low, thank God. However... 
That is still enough that 3,144 people died by suicide in 2021. And the rate's been rising slowly over the past 10 years. I, I guess I could have said just over 3,000, but I, I wanted to let each one of those numbers sink in because they all represent a life. They all represent lost potential, lost human potential. Suicide is only the 15th highest cause of death overall in Australia, but it is the highest cause of death in young people. Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, speaking of vulnerable groups, they have significantly higher rates than non-Indigenous youth in the data as well. And research shows that for every one suicide occurrence amongst young people, there is somewhere between 100 and 200 unsuccessful attempts. Now, I'm glad they're unsuccessful, but boy, that's a lot. And that's an enormous tragedy. Now, one thing you may not know is that although suicide is not illegal, taking any part in someone else's suicide is. That's illegal. The intentional killing of a person, even at their request, is still legally murder in Australia. And so be very, very careful how you care for people who are in this situation. The first thing, by the way, that you should do if anyone is speaking about suicidal ideation, that is having suicidal thoughts, is to encourage them to call Lifeline straight away. Okay, before you attempt to counsel them, before you point them to a pastor or an elder, these are good things to do. First, make sure they're safe. Get them on the phone with an expert. Lifeline is, this is Australia's, it's 13114. You can Google it, you'll find it. It's Australia's leading uh, carer and leading suicide prevention service. Would anyone like to hazard a guess where Lifeline came out of? The Uniting Church, correct. The Reverend Dr. Alan Walker, who began Wesley Mission in Sydney, took a phone call one night for somebody who was desperate and had nowhere else to turn, and he resolved that even though he took that call, what if he didn't? What if he couldn't? And he didn't want that to happen again, so he began Lifeline 24-hour care. It's still run out of Wesley Mission Church in Sydney, run by our friend Stu Cameron. And I just mentioned that to point out the incredible amount of social good the church has historically done and continues to do to this day. Very, very important. Let's shift over to euthanasia. Euthanasia is, is linked to suicide in a way, but it's very, very different. Euthanasia is, is now known in Australia as voluntary assisted dying. I think that's a very new term that's come in, so I led off with euthanasia just so we all had an idea of where we're at. Voluntary assisted dying is when a dying person who is suffering in the final stages of life asks their doctor for medication to help them die. The person must be an adult, this is Australian law I'm reading now, have decision-making capacity and be assessed as eligible by two independent doctors. So, and the key in Australia around voluntary assisted dying is the person must be terminally ill. That's not the case across the globe, but in Australia it is. Now the language, because it's language, is, is a little bit ambiguous. Suffering in the final stages of life is a little bit of a loose phrase, though Australian law has it covered at this stage. So in South Australia, for example, a person is not eligible to access voluntary assisted dying if they have a mental illness or a disability without also having a disease, illness or medical condition that meets the criteria I mentioned before. So it's quite strict. And in South Australia, a person also needs to self-administer the medication. This is a brand new thing. This began in January in South Australia. That's when the law was enacted. So we are all still living in the after effects of this world in South Australia, seeing how that will affect us. 
One of the perceived problems with voluntary assisted dying globally is that rules and regulations can begin to get a bit more flexible over time. So in the Netherlands, for example, uh, there, been, there's no age limit on euthanasia, no, no age limit. Uh, and in some cases, it has been administered to physically healthy young people who struggle with mental illness. Perfectly physically healthy, but they struggle with mental illness. Now, for many doctors, even in the Netherlands, this is deeply ethically concerning. Now, as we move out of the sort of, I, 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 you know, we call this section ideology, really, that was just information. Uh, as we move out of that section, I, I kind of want to pose a thought as we head into the Word of God and unpacking what God says about these issues. And that's this. Given that both of these are forms of suicide, why is it that if you ask the average person on the street, they treat one as a tragedy and one as an act of mercy? It's an interesting question to have sitting in the back of your mind. Let's ask what the Bible says about suicide and euthanasia. Well, not a whole lot, to be honest. At least not directly. Because as always, the Bible gives us these beautiful themes that cover all of humanity and that in it, we find ourselves in an understanding of ourselves. So we've talked about these two major theological ideas that we've been unpacking uh, through this series. The first, that the Imago Dei, that we are made in the image of God. We are the pinnacle of creation as human beings. God's image is on you in a unique way that it is not on an animal or, or, or a plant. Then there's identity in Christ, that we're called to follow Jesus Christ and become more like him, finding our identities as human beings in God alone, in Christ alone. And so those two things have been very important, but we've talked about them. So let me unpack a couple of other big picture topics that are worth considering. The first is that we are embodied people, and these bodies are on loan from God. This is what 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 to 20 says about this. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, when Paul writes this, this is in the context of a wide variety of things because the Corinthian church was into a wide variety of things. But when he speaks about it, it's a pervasive idea. Now, every one of you knows this at an intellectual level. Nobody's ever come up to me and gone, guess what? I created my body. Pretty impressive, wasn't it? Like, no, nobody thinks that. We know that we were born. So somebody else created our body. Even if you don't believe in God, nobody thinks they created themselves. So your job then is to steward it and care for it, right? That's what your bodies are for. You've got to steward it and care for it as best as you can. In a similar way, when we think about it and we stop, we realize that our bodies are integrated because uh, when we feel a lot of stress, we feel it in our bodies, like, right? As, as the book says, the body keeps the score. Or if, if we feel, uh, if we come into physical contact with somebody we love, our emotions begin to shift, you know? It's all linked together. That's why in the great commandment, Jesus says to the disciples, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not one or the other, all of them together. We are integrated and embodied in a physical body. But the way we treat our body is as if it belongs to us. We don't tend to think about what's good for others in the way we treat our body. We say things like, well, it's fine as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, which is the most naive statement I can think about. Because you do not live by yourself. Just like your body is not your own, a man is not an island. John Doan said that, the poet. 
A man is not an island. We live in an ecosystem with other human beings. There are reverberations, butterfly effects, ripple effects. What you do affects others. You matter to others, and they matter to you. That's the ecosystem. So not only are we embodied people, we live in an ecosystem with others. Now, the second theological principle, this is not a complex one, I mentioned it last week, is that murder, the deliberate taking of a human life, is against God's will. Exodus 20, 13, the sixth commandment, do not murder. That's the whole thing. Do not murder. (laughs) There's no subtext in it. It says, do not murder. So that isn't a complicated idea. Don't kill people, for most of us, on a day-to-day living, is is a pretty easy one to follow, right? Really? Like, that that was very low on the affirmation level. Interesting. Until we find ourselves face-to-face with our own fears and preferences around death. One final piece of broad theology for you, and that is a theology of death. Now, I'm not going to get into this too much because next week we've got Pastor Katie Isles from Journey here, great friend of the church. She will be preaching on death. She has recently walked with her own father who had terminal cancer for many, many years and, and seen him pass away, the Reverend Dr. Nick Hawkes. The last person to preach on death at this church was Reverend Dr. Nick Hawkes. So we will get to hear his daughter pick up the, th- the story, both personally and theologically. So I do not want to step on her toes too much. So I want to say this, that if you skim through movie, music, uh, literature, you'll get a thousand views of death. Most of them have nothing to do with the Christian vision of heaven and death. So the author Haruki Murakami wrote that death is not the opposite of life, but a part of it, which is one of those things that sounds very beautiful when you say it out loud. But if it's just a part of life, why do we seem to fight it so much? Right? If it's just this natural inclination, why do we fight it? Stephen Hawking said this, that he regards the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Well, Hawking's worked that out for himself by now. But let me ask this, if that's true, what about beauty? What about courage? What about purpose? Where do the intangible elements of life, the ones that actually give us satisfaction, where do they come from if our computerized brains are like this? See, whether we read sci-fi stories about cryogen freezing our, our bodies for extending our lives or taking vitamins or supplements or an AI concept about uploading our consciousness to the cloud, whatever we are looking at, there is this societal fear and uncertainty around death. Death friends, is not the other side of life for a Christian. It is an unwanted enemy. Let me me just be clear on that. We sometimes listen to comments about death and we can feel like we should go, yeah, yeah, it's just a part of the natural life. Well, yes, it's part of the natural life, but it's an interruption from God's original vision for life. It entered after the fall. Only after the fall of man does death enter the world, after Genesis 3. See, Jesus defeated the power of death on the cross and in the resurrection. And that's one of the things we hold on to as Christians. But it's still an unwanted interruption. Haven't you read 1 Corinthians? Okay. Have have you read Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows? Okay, good. The final enemy to be defeated is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, right in the middle of the most famous series of all time. The final enemy to be defeated is death. Death is not a friend to be embraced. But because of Jesus, 
Neither is it an enemy to be feared. It's an obstacle. It's a barrier. It's the enemy of life, but Jesus is the Lord of life. All I'm really trying to say here is that even though death is inevitable, and for the, Christ, for the Christian, it's not to be feared, the Bible also is very clear that neither is death to be embraced. That language sometimes of death is just an old friend, just the beginning of a new adventure. Well, perhaps, but it's not to be embraced. Because of the resurrection of Christ, death is a defeated enemy. Sometimes when we hear about death, the next thing we talk about is what happens after death. And one of the things that I get asked the most around suicide is is this question. If somebody commits suicide, do they go straight to hell? In fact, the way I normally hear it phrased is, one of the things I can't deal with is that when somebody commits suicide, they go to hell. I don't like that idea. Well, I've got good news for you. That is not what the Bible says. Not at all. This is actually a hangover from Catholicism, early, early Catholicism, where they split sin up into mortal sin that condemns you and venial sin, which just needs to be forgiven. Look that up in the Bible all you like. It isn't there. What happened is they took the ideas of the great Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and sort of mixed them around and butchered them a bit and then applied them in, in a horrific way. But it isn't biblical and it also doesn't make logical sense. Right? Let's say I'm walking along and a beautiful woman crosses the road and I look at her lustfully and I get hit by a car. Am I going to hell? That's a stupid thing. That is a stupid way of looking at it. It's illogical. Why is it illogical? Because every one of us, when we come towards death, we'll have unconfessed sin in our lives. Now, what what the Catholics did, and and like obviously they, they have shifted as they've gone further on. So this is not what they necessarily believe now, although some of them would. But they shifted a bit. But what they believed and what they were so desperate to do is they have last rites where they come and anoint somebody with oil before they die so that they do have that forgiveness. But do you know why you have forgiveness? Because Christ has purchased it for you once and for all. That's why you have forgiveness. So it is never a question of heaven or hell, right? Romans 3 teaches us that the sin a Christian will commit tomorrow was forgiven at Calvary 2,000 years ago. That's when it was forgiven, where Jesus justified us, declaring us righteous before God. He accomplished this work through one single act. It doesn't need to be repeated again. We need to come and invite forgiveness because it changes our life. But Jesus' work of forgiveness has been done once and for all. Right? Let's just, just think about it this way. David was called a man after God's own heart. What did he do with Uriah the Hittite? He deliberately sent him out to be killed. Basically ordered a hit on him. Like that's, that's effectively what David did. He got a man murdered on purpose. In the scriptures, we know him as a man after God's own heart. Why? Because David accepted the forgiveness and mercy of God as well as the consequences of his actions. This is why we can confidently speak the words of Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can say that with confidence. Nothing will separate us from God because Jesus has done it once and for all on the cross. So suicide does not automatically send people to hell. I want us to be clear on that. Heaven and hell is not about the way you die. It's about the way you live, the choice you make when you live. That's a sermon for another day. 
However, the Bible does teach us that heaven and hell exist and that there is an eternity beyond this life and where we go depends really not on our last action, more on how we love and who we worship. Love and worship of Jesus is what defines our eventual eternity, not how we die. But love and worship of Jesus should lead to following Jesus, should lead to becoming more like Jesus. His actions become our actions. His thoughts, his heart become like us. And when we do that, we embrace life. You with me? Yeah. Okay. Let's look quickly at some arguments for and against voluntary assisted dying. And I'm only providing arguments for these because there really aren't any arguments for suicide. This is not, this is not something I've, I've come across and people going, well, what about this? So let's talk about voluntary assisted dying. Um, it's, it's important first that we distinct, uh, uh, distinguish between active and passive voluntary assisted dying. Okay, So pass, uh, active euthanasia is killing a patient by active means. So for example, a lethal injection. Okay? It's an action. Passive euthanasia is intentionally letting a patient die by withholding life support. Now that, that sounds awful when you say it that way, but really what you're saying is the body cannot live on its own so we will just let it die, actually let it take its natural course. So the key word there really is artificial life support. If the body cannot support itself on its own and it cannot recover to life, that's when that is removed and that's a form of passive euthanasia. Now that's important because Christians have no real argument against passive euthanasia. It's actually just allowing life to come to its end it's a recognition that there has been a fight against death that has come to an end. And that does come to an end for all of us. doesn't mean we don't fight. That's really just having no medical intervention. So we're really talking about active euthanasia, active voluntary assisted dying. So the Christian argument for this largely concerns mercy. So if God is merciful, and if like Psalm 23 verse 6, we read it today, and sang it today, that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, Shouldn't that mercy extend to ending the lives of the suffering? But then we run into the problem of the question I proposed earlier, because nobody's making that same argument about suicide. Nobody's making that same argument. There's no Christian standing up to affirm that. We know suicide is wrong. Yes, it's a sin. Let, let me be clear about that. But again, it's not going to condemn you to hell. That's about your relationship with Jesus. It is wrong. It is a sin. We know it's a tragedy. And if you're here and you're one of those people that's never experienced suicidal ideation, you are very fortunate. And, and it's very important that you listen instead of speak. Uh, one of the reasons I feel more confident in speaking on this subject is I have been down that road. I've been in the dark night of the soul, spiritually and physically. I'll talk about that a little more later. People with suicidal ideation, just so you understand, they don't think it's a good option either. They just don't see any other options in that moment. They don't know how to get out of that in that moment. It's not that they think it's good. They just don't know what else to do. We also run into the problem of suffering as a part of the Christian experience. James 1, 2 to 4. Come on, resilient disciples. You know this. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because we know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. 
So James not only acknowledges suffering, he tells us to embrace it with joy. Similarly, Jesus challenged his disciples to take up their cross to follow him. He said, in this life, you will have troubles. It's a guarantee. It's inevitable. In fact, the navigation of suffering is a critical part of the Christian experience an acceptance that it exists and a navigation of it in a healthy way with Jesus at the center. So so that's how we grow. So mercy in itself is not a sufficient argument. The other Christian argument for VAD has to do with love your neighbor as you would love yourself. And again, that's one of those truisms that sounds good by itself. But if you want to love your neighbor in the way of Jesus, don't love them the way they feel in that moment. Love them the way Jesus would love them if he was here. Love them into a manner that makes them more like Jesus, even if that is difficult. And that goes both ways. So if you want to love me well, if you want to love each other well, help me follow Jesus better. Not easier, better. More like Jesus himself. Now, the Christian argument against voluntary assisted dying has has many layers. Some of them have outlined already in those broad theological strokes. But this is where where we come back to the vulnerable. Let's put aside the Christian views on on murder, on death. We've spoken about them. How do we know that somebody in immense pain has the physical capacity to make the decision in their own self-interest? That is a a very difficult question. Now, it's a chicken and the egg question. It's impossible. But it's a very difficult question. Now, if VAD expands its definition, and it probably will over time, this is what tends to happen, well, that means we're now trusting people with poor mental health to make a decision about their physical health. That's tricky. That is very, very tricky, very fraught. Similarly, the potential of this power to be abused by manipulative and selfish people for financial gain is significant and concerning. So, and and Christian, there's a surprising amount of Christian people that work in palliative care, excellent, excellent, excellent Christian palliative care doctors, and you should talk to them. But if the Christian arguments against euthanasia are so clear, well, why is this such a pervasive question? Now, this is rhetorical because you actually know the answer, but let me go around in circles as I get there. The deeper we get into difficult topics, the more God challenges the idol of our hearts. The greatest idol of our heart is this, I get to play God for myself. That's the deepest idol at the heart of everything. It's not about sex, money, or power. It's actually about my self-determination. And this has grown and grown in recent times until we actually don't really understand in the West what it means to live collectively at all. In fact, radical individualism rules the day. What do I want right now? That tends to be how we live our lives. Some of those decisions are good, many of them are bad. It's a pervasive idea because it is this idea that puts us in place of Christ on the throne. And we name it as about freedom, but the freedom it brings is not good. The fruit it brings is negative. It's not true. The freedom it produces is damaging. When we try and find freedom from life rather than in life, we hurt ourselves and others badly. So I actually think we've embraced a kind of game theory culture, a gamification of our life. So that story about my family, right? It was, it was, it's funny, right? And, and it's like, yeah, look, I got, them all, I got a whole new set of grandparents. Fantastic. The flip side of this is we embrace that shortcut in other parts of life. So instead of cooking dinner, let's order Uber Eats. Instead of entering the covenant of marriage through slowly working out a relationship with somebody that we know and trust and care for, it's intersex. 
uh, isolated Christians rather than being part of a healthy worshipping community. Ending lives immediately through abortion, suicide and euthanasia rather than managing the difficulty of complicated families, mental illness and declining parents. As I mentioned earlier, one Christian argument is that it is merciful to end lives quickly. And if I'm being honest, out of all the topics we've talked about, I find this the most personally difficult to examine. Euthanasia, that is, voluntary sister dying. Because there is an element where you're like, man, I can only imagine the pain and suffering that people with terminal illness are going through. I only know secondhand from speaking to others. But my goodness, that at the very least all of us can do is have extraordinary compassion on these people. I would hope that's the least our church can do. But I also think the church can do more. And I wonder if one of the problems at the root of people wrestling with suicide and voluntary assisted dying is community. Is the church actually stepping up and being the church? I don't mean community in this sense that it, once a week you turn up, once a week if I'm lucky, once every few weeks if you're not thinking it through very well. You turn up and you say hello and you get a free coffee and you get a good to, you know, you can, you can judge how good everything is. How, that's, that's not sufficient for this. That's sufficient on a good week. You're like, I feel great. High fives all around. On a bad week, when you are in the depths of despair, when you are, as Psalm 23 says, in the valley of the shadow of death, you need other people to pull you out. You can't do that on your own. I remember a few years ago, a pastor took his life and really, really threw me. This guy was actually a real mental health advocate, but he had demons that he was battling. And, and I remember processing this and, and thinking about it through the lens of my own diagnosis of depression and looking at that and just, and just describing depression as a pit because it's like a pit where, you, where you're just looking down and you can't see up. And the up exists, but you can't see it. And so if you're trying to dig your way out of it, all you're doing is going down. Now, the only way to get out of that is for someone to reach down and lift you up. And the only way for that to happen for you, if you're in that position, is by placing yourself vulnerably in community regularly and challenging others to love you in the way of Jesus. It is actually okay if you are here and you've been wrestling with those thoughts. My heart goes out to you, my empathy, my understanding as best as I can without understanding your situation. It is actually okay for you to challenge the people in this church and say, I am a baptized member of this church. I'm a part of this family. You need to come through for me right now. I'm struggling and I need you to help. Likewise, it is okay if you're part of this church to go and check in on somebody and go, hey, you okay? You don't look like you're going great. And let them speak the truth to you. Now, sometimes you'll say that and they'll be like, oh, I actually feel pretty good. Do, do I look bad? That's... I've experienced that one, <laughs> both sides. <laughs> but sometimes the Spirit of God is prompting you to reach out in empathy and kindness and, and in His great compassion and mercy, what does He do? He does two things. He sends His Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts and He sends people to, to put an arm around us and be the body of Christ to one another. 
when David's praying Psalm 23, and he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What does he say next? Why? Because you are with me. He doesn't say, I'll fear no evil because it doesn't exist. He doesn't say, oh, oh, I'm not ever gonna walk through the valley of the shadow of death because I'm just like earmuffs, blinders. I'm not, I'm not looking at things that are negative in my life. He acknowledges that pain and suffering are real. He knew depression. Like a third of the Psalms are about his depression and another third are half about his depression and then half about him like sort of singing about, actually, no, I'm all good. Yeah. Which is frankly what it's like sometimes when you wrestle with depression. But what he knew is that even in this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you know what rod and staff are? Like he doesn't say like your blanket comforts me. That's what I would have said. Your electric blanket comforts me. <laughs> a rod and a staff are disciplinary tools. That's something to go, hey, no, you don't. No, you don't. That is the love of Christ in action. You go, absolutely not. Get back here. Well, I'm trying to run away from community. You can't stop me. The heck I can't. Watch me. Sit down. You're going to sit here and listen to how important you are to us. Well, I feel uncomfortable with that. Okay. <laughs> I would rather your discomfort than what you're thinking. Parable of the lost sheep. What does Jesus do? He talks about leaving 99 to go and chase one. That's what it means to be the family of God. Now, it's easy to be the family of God when things are working. It's harder when things aren't working. It's way harder when people have massive physical or mental health constraints. It's way harder to be the family of God when it's an ongoing illness. It's not something you can just pray for and it gets healed and we go, praise God, walk away. Like, what about if it's not? Where are we then? Because Jesus stepped down into the muck with us. He didn't stay up there. The Son of God gave it up for us. We read that in Philippians 2. That having all power, being like God, He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Church, if you want to be the real church, the real family of God, if you want to see life break out in the way that I believe we read in the Bible, which is to say everybody embrace life, it will require getting down in the muck with people and loving them. It's hard work. It's hard work. I might just leave that there, but I wonder what it would look like if we stepped in to do that. Jesus reminded us in John's gospel that this is how people will know we are his disciples, by the way we love other Christians. Oh, other people? No, 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 because as we love one another and we do that out of the walls of the church, people look at that and they're like, People are really helping you out. It's like, yeah, of course. It's the church. Like, it's the same church that starts Lifeline and keeps it going for 60 years because people matter. Yeah, but these people are hard work. Who cares? Oh, but this person really, like, they really messed up. They really sinned. Like, and? I don't care. Jesus died for me. Paul called himself the worst of all sinners. That's Paul who wrote, like, most of the New Testament the worst of all sinners. Do you know why he said that? Because he knew himself better than we did. I am the worst of all sinners. When I look at myself in the mirror, and I don't mean in a beating up way, I'm like, oh, God, how do you do it? 
Like, how do, you, how do you use me? How do you love me? Not because I'm feeling bad in this moment, because I'm just like, I am aware of myself. But I choose as much as I can to be aware of myself within a healthy, accountable community to a God that loves me more than I love myself. Yeah. And who reaches out and embraces me and gets himself dirty when I am in the muck. And that's what we're called to be as a church. with a family of God. And every time we step away from that obligation, because it doesn't suit our convenience, we take the suffering of our sister and brother and we say, why don't you keep that? I know Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but I'm not really up to carrying any of your burden right now. So pop it back on you. It's not good enough. Now, the flip side is true too. If you've been running from God, or you've been going, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it outside a community. It ain't going to work. You, you've got to submit yourself to an accountable community where you can love people and you can let them love you in return. The beauty of this is you don't have to be healed to love and serve others. You can serve them while you're still wounded. You need to be receiving healing yourself. Otherwise, that can get damaging. But you can actually serve people right now. Jesus meets people right where we're at. This is why, I haven't said this for a while, but encounter, you can belong before you believe, right? You don't have to make yourself right for us to love you. Stick around as long as you like. You don't have to be a believer in Jesus. That's where we want you to go. We're going to love you despite that. That's what it's got to be like with people. See, I just want you to think of Jesus as we come to a close, who on the cross... Here's to that wood for our sin. Here's what he did. He took the time to bring the disciple John and his mother Mary together and create a new family. Even in his wounds, he created community, life-giving community. So can you. Jesus understands grief and tragedy. We have a saviour who is acquainted with our grief. He invites you to wash yourself clean in him. And then he says, take my burden on you. Let me, let me do a bit of a swap here. I'll take your burden, you take mine. His burden is light. And in that transaction, we give our pain and we get God's peace. That is a life-giving deal. Here's my final word on this. In the depths of our heart, I believe we have some deep questions that are also very dangerous, and that is this. Do we matter? Do we have purpose? Does our suffering have meaning? Is, are we only valuable when we do things or act in a certain way or at a certain point of life? These are deep, dark questions. And suicide and the ending of our lives early come about when we forget that God has given us an answer to this question. You matter because you are made. Your life has intrinsic value. That means there is nothing you can do to become more valuable, nothing. You are valuable because God says you are valuable. He's placed His image on each and every one of you. He loves you. He calls you His daughter. He calls you His son. Every human life, whether atheist, Christian, Hindu, whatever, has value, not because of what you do, not even because of what you believe, but because God says it does. He places value on you. Every human life matters. This is true for everyone here at every stage of life. Your work might bring you meaning, doesn't bring you value. Your family might bring you joy, they don't bring you value. You have value on your own. 
Human life has value in and of itself. Life with disability, life with suffering, life with being mentally unwell, life with a terminal illness. Now I say this with trembling hands. Having stared my life in the face before, it is a difficult burden, but we don't carry it alone in our spirit. And we're not meant to carry it alone, but to bear it in community. We bear one another's burdens. We love the way Christ loved us. See, every life here is a life worth living for Jesus. Every one is a life worth fighting for.